Mm, Father, thank you for the fellowship we are enjoying. Um, and this time now we have to be in front of your word. Um, Father, thank you that there is a bit of mystery when we encounter your word. Um, sometimes your word is powerfully effective right in the moment. And other times it works more slowly. And other times it feels like it doesn't work at all. Um, and the interaction between your word and the, the heart is a bit of a mystery. But Lord, we would know that you would be honored if we would cry out in our heart, give us understanding. You would respond to anyone who cries out that they would want to hear from you. So we believe that you use this moment to speak to your people, to give them strength, to give them your grace, and to give them, give them a, a big, big picture of who you are, what you are like, and where you are taking all of us. So in the name of Christ, I pray for those things. Uh, amen. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 26. I have spent a long time looking at this text. Sometimes sermons come, by, come, come together pretty quickly. Those are great weeks. This is not a great week. Um, I have stared at this text actually <laughs> a long time, just looking at it. I understand it. Um, but I've just been wrestling with, okay, uh, I get the details, um, but trying to figure out what, how would this apply to you? Well, you stand up here on a Sunday morning and say, this is vital. This decision in this upper room in Jerusalem, um, okay, they've got 11, we know what happened to Judas, all right, we need 12. Is that, is that like profound, life-changing truth? You know, please don't hear me making fun of God's word. I've been thinking, and I, I, I thought there's, there's something going on here that's going to need uh, careful attention. And um, it's like catching a big fish. Um, you want to be real quiet around the edge of the pond. And uh, so that would hap- that's what happened to me this week. Acts chapter 1. Um, Luke's second volume. Luke wrote quite a bit in our New Testament. And the second volume, he continues to tell what Jesus was doing through the Holy Spirit. The main character of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are going to look next Sunday at the amazing moment when the Spirit arrives and empowers the disciples for extraordinary work and ministry. But this passage is before that happens. They have come back. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has told them to do two things. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. 
And so they're waiting, and there's about 120 of them, we're told. Um, Several of the women who are recorded as seeing Christ resurrected in the resurrected resurrection passages, the mother of Mary, his uh, natural brothers, and then, of course, the disciples and, and others. So 120 people, and they're waiting. And Jude, uh, Judas is no longer with them. He uh, has passed away through suicide. And um, Peter stands up. And uh, he has two quotations from the Psalms. And he is trying to make sense of the absence of Judas. His position needs to be filled. And so they, they make a decision via uh, the casting of lots. And uh, that is a, a, a procedure where they would, uh, and this is recorded for us in Joshua 14, actually, when they are entering the land of Canaan, there are 12 tribes, and uh, I imagine there's some parts of the land that are more special than others. I would have liked to have been near the river, and uh, so I can feed my animals and grow my crops. So they decided that God would lead them through the casting of lots. Uh, what tribe would get what region of, of Canaan? And so the casting of lots is usually what happens is you put the name of a uh, of an individual, in this case would be the tribe, uh, on a, a stone or a piece of wood. Uh, and uh, it would be put into some sort of vessel, a bowl, likely. And, um, and as the names are drawn, uh, so is the decision of the Lord. A little bit unusual. It sounds a little bit primitive in our day, isn't it? But uh, Proverbs... I believe it's Proverbs 14, tells us that uh, in the casting of a lot, uh, the, d- the decision is from the Lord. So they're taking the book of Proverbs seriously. And um, Matthias is chosen, and that is the last we ever hear of Matthias. Um, but he is a witness of the resurrection. He is one who has been with them since the days of John the Baptist. So he's one who can retell with personal eyewitness testimony of the events of, of Jesus' Jesus's life, and he is a witness of the resurrection. And then we have the story ends. That's it. So what I think is going on here is they're getting organized. They're getting organized. And they're getting organized around the number 12. And I uh, want to suggest to you that what's really going on here is a recapitulation of the story of Israel. That is, that we see this in the life of, of Jesus, that the story of Israel is retold in the life of Jesus. A recapitulation is something like, let's say you were at work and someone gave a 25-page single-spaced presentation of, uh, of something with your work. That sounds awful, doesn't it? <clears throat> and you are just getting lost in all the details, and so at the end of that, you raise your hand and you say, I would like a recapitulation. And what that means is you would like just the headings. Please give these a summary of just the headings, the, the main points. Well, 
If we didn't have a recapitulation in the New Testament, we'd probably have a repeat of the whole Old Testament. Meaning that the New Testament is sort of the notes, the fulfillment notes of the Old Testament. A recapitulation of the story of Israel. And it's significant that the number 12 is associated with the decision that is made through the casting of lots, and that parallels Israel in the entrance of, uh, to, to Canaan. And so what we have here is the recapitulation of the story of Israel, except this time it is in the context of the resurrection, and it is in the context of a new beginning, a new creation has begun, and a new Israel is being formed. So that's sort of the long meditation thought. What's going on here and why is it significant? They're getting organized because they represent and understand that they are the foundation of the new Israel that is now going to be formed through the Jews and the Gentiles, the New Testament church. Now, I don't know how many times you've heard this, but this is a, a phrase that comes out of the 60s, that people are into spirituality but not organized religion, right? How many, can you raise your hand? How many have heard that? I'm not into organized religion, you know? Now, if you want a little quip and maybe a smart alecky thing to say, oh, you must be into disorganized religion, but that's, that's uh, something you may not want to say, but... Um, That's quite a popular term, isn't it? I'm not into organized religion. And so that's really quite a statement, really, is that I can organize my own religion, thank you. Um, That comes out of the 60s, by the way. And the 60s was a time of of high experience, whether through illicit drugs, um, music. 60s was very experiential. I would find my way to truth through experience. 60s was also very much an anti-government time. It's really quite remarkable in our day and age when everyone's now looking to the government of all things. Well, in the 60s, no, not quite. Very different back then. Now, I was only a kid in the 60s, but all my siblings were older, and um, I was very influenced by all that, the, that age And another aspect of the 60s is that there is nothing more exciting and more important than our moment. History can't teach us anything, especially mom and dad. So we're going to reinvent everything. And baby boomers have thought those kinds of things. And they've applied those thoughts to the church even. So... I'm not into organized religion, so I can find God at the beach on my own, right? I don't have to be anywhere. I don't have to be anywhere. I'm this loose, free agent, very flexible. What I'm into in the 20s changes when I'm in the 30s, and I'm a whole different person when I'm in my 40s and in the 50s. Who knows what's going to happen? Just very thing, everything is fluid and flexible. Somehow that is the way we are supposed to, to look at life, to be rooted, traditional, um, receive from your forefathers, receive from history what is wise and good um, is is not in vogue even 
even today. So Jesus comes and organizes, you see, even Jesus can be seen as one who is just sort of loose and teaching on the hill and uh, with people who are, you know, kind of like hippies and sort of, he just sort of, he doesn't, he doesn't intend to do anything, but he's just sort of a spiritual teacher. You don't find that in Acts chapter 1. The disciples understand that something is being built here, and it is being built upon eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So Israel's story is now being formed in the New Testament church. So really, it's, it just flows along here in chapter uh, 1, verse 12. We find them going back to uh, Jerusalem, waiting. We find specific names of the disciples being listed. Uh, there's a reason for that. These are credible eyewitnesses, and they are authorized to speak as apostles, as those who, are, those who can speak on behalf of the risen Jesus in an authoritative way. And they, there's a strong emphasis upon prayer in the early church. You can see that in verse 14. When you are up against a big mission, by the way, and you're really caught up in mission, um, the overwhelming nature of the mission should grab you. It should catch you. It should humble you. And you begin to pray. Something for us to think about. Are we on mission as a church? Are we gripped by mission? And do we pray? Verse 15, then Peter stands up. 120 people is noted by Luke. In that day, according to uh, Jew- Jewish custom, 120 people was roughly the figure that would allow a group to have their own judiciary or uh, that would settle civil matters. It's another thing that they would uh, usually be considered big enough to be put on a map. A little, little side note there. 120. Luke's sending a message. The church will have its own governing body. And uh, does that make sense? In other words, it's, there, there's something's being put together here. God's people are being put together as their, as their own entity. Then Peter speaks, Brother, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And so uh, the, another characteristic of the early church is they are scriptural in their concerns. They are under authority, under the authority of Jesus in his word, go back to Jerusalem, and now they are looking for answers in their scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament, And Peter quotes two psalms, and uh, he reasons that these psalms are speaking of Judas who left his office, and he needs to be replaced. Judas apostatized. This means he lived in unbelief, became hardened in his heart, cooperated with Satan, and turned away from his profession. It's called apostasy. Judas needs to be replaced because of apostasy, not because he died. We find uh, one of the apostles named James is killed in Acts chapter 12, but he is not replaced. At least there's there's no record of him being replaced. 
And so what I'm presenting to you is that the intent of the apostolic office is not to be perpetual. They understood that they needed to start this stage of the church with 12 of them, but the intent was not that there would always be an apostle on the earth. Now, I think there's some big church in Rome that has a different view of this, and that there is someone who can speak authoritatively apart from Scripture. Well, we don't hold that the Scriptures teach that at all. Now, the apostle is a very important individual, an eyewitness, a foundational uh, individual who can speak authoritatively to church matters, disputes, but most importantly, to proclaim the risen Christ with great authority. Now, uh, I don't know how does it feel to you like church business I'm saying this is kind of like a church business meeting, right? I mean, if we ever have a congregational meeting, do you, does your heart just soar? Is that, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I get phone calls. Pastor Todd, I'm so excited. We're going to hang around and talk about church business. I don't get any calls like that. Isn't that funny how we're like that, isn't it? It's kind of church business here, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've got a quote from the psalm. We're trying to figure out so sad about Judas and... We should all be humbled by that story, by the way. Church business. I was the moderator of our presbytery for a year. That means three meetings. Felt like more. But uh, for some reason, I don't know what it was, but I got nominated to be the moderator, and in a moment of weakness, I agreed. And um, so we have a gathering of elders that is from Hawaii, Northern California, and Utah. And so I am installed here from that presbytery. I'm accountable to them. I took vows to these brothers. Right? So we're not an independent church. We are a connected church. And so there's our local elders here. Uh, that's a governing body. Then there's a governing body called the presbytery. And then there's a governing body called the General Assembly which meets in Mobile, Alabama this summer. If anybody wants to go to Mobile. I, I need you to tell me there's good reasons to go to Mobile, Alabama. But Sorry if you're from that area. I hear Al- What's that? Shrimp. Shrimp. Okay, thank you. I hear Alabama's an absolutely beautiful state, so please don't. Anyway. So General Assembly, Presbytery, and then the local body, elders. So I am moderating a meeting and uh, I have to sort of know, what I, you know, at least give the illusion that I know what I'm doing. And um, I am moderating subjects that are remarkably boring to me. And um, that means that it's just not that intriguing to me. So I'm up there and we do our, you know, it's four or five hour meeting, maybe longer. And uh, some of the sub, whoa, some of them can go on and on and on. And uh, the moderator should watch for ways to shorten those things, uh, legitimately do, do that. But um, I found over the three meetings that I moderated that I matured a bit, and that was in this way. I began to realize that 
All these details we do are important. And it's just not my preference about how I think things ought to be. And one of the things about being a moderator, it kind of shook up my way of attending presbytery. And you know what my way of attending presbytery is? Well, I sit in the back row, and they usually have Wi-Fi. And I work on my sermon, or I'm checking email, and there's other guys doing this too. And that may be, sound disappointing to you, but we're busy guys. And if it's boring up front, then, and no, no one's asking for our opinion yet, we got stuff to do. Does that make right? That might come shocking to some of you. It's great. So that's how, and then also in the back row, you have access to the snacks and coffee. And so, so, so that's, you know, that's kind of, I mean, I enjoy, I love Presbytery gatherings, the hanging out. And, and it's, it's fun, and it's good stuff. It's important. It's kind of like my church in that sense, and sort of thing. But, wow, moderator, you're, everyone's, you know, you've got to keep this going. I learned that it is vitally important, the work of the church, that it's good, it's important, it's right. And some of you are just naturally inclined to take, you know, okay, this is my job, I'll take it seriously, you know what I'm saying? That's good. I can follow you. I need to follow you. I think we're being called to being part of an organized church. That it has, you have a place to be on Sunday morning. You have a role to play. You have a contribution to make. And uh, by being part of a body of believers, you are saying and professing faith in many ways, and you are quite countercultural. In our day and age, particularly in the United States, we are not joiners. How many here are part of a bowling league? Okay. How many here are part of a civic club? This means that we are increasingly more individualistic in our understanding of our lives and even our participation in the life of the church. So I realized that being attentive to the whole business of the church was for my good. And there were men in the meeting who thought something was important and they were speaking earnestly and I needed to give them my attention and thoughtfully respond and direct the meeting. It was a way of loving my brothers and not living by my preferences. You are part of the body if you have professed faith, been baptized. You, there's a call to be part of something. Not to date the church, but to marry her. And uh, for me, it would be not imagining that I'm a Presbyterian, not imagining it, but being one. Believing and thinking and, and, and acting in connectivity, with connection to my brothers in Utah and Northern California and ultimately Mobile, Alabama. They choose places like that for our sanctification, I think.
We could have it here in Hawaii, huh? Our, we could try. Your contribution, your work matters. And joining a church may not be the direct application of Acts chapter 1, but I think it's a subtext. We need someone to join us who's an eyewitness. We need one more person to fulfill the ministry because Christ determined that there would be 12 of us to represent the new Israel he is forming. And 12 is a stronger witness than 11. Flat out. That's it. So Peter just quotes the Psalms. This is what happened to Judas. This is what we should do. And they all agreed. Joining a church, I believe, is essential to your calling as a believer. So um, let's apply this in a couple of other ways, and then I'm going to wrap it up. As I looked at this, I began to see a pattern of their behavior, their lives. And I began to see that what J.I. Packer describes as revival is happening in this passage. It may not make sense to think that revival can happen without the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit arrives in Acts chapter 2, but clearly the Spirit is working in some powerful way among the disciples, and we shouldn't make such a sharp distinction as if they are uh, uh, not given God's guidance and presence. J.I. Packer lists four things for revival. And I think these are all demonstrated in this unique business section of Acts chapter 1. Awareness of God's presence. They are praying. Packer says that the first and fundamental feature of, in renewal is the sense that God has drawn awesomely near. And I'm thinking... As they're waiting in Jerusalem, Jesus has ascended to heaven. They're about to be commissioned. They have been commissioned. They're waiting to be empowered on high. God is drawing awesomely near. And he is drawing near in his holiness, mercy, and might. Secondly, Packer says, responsiveness to God's word. The message of scripture, which previously was only making only a superficial impact, if that, now searches its hearers and readers to the depth of their being. Third, sensitivity or sensitiveness, sensitivity to sin. Conscious, the conscience has become tender and a profound humbling takes place. I think that the effect of the story of Judas is not to like fold the arms, yeah, what a loser. It's a tragic story, full of, con full of real consequences. You can't hear the story and become prideful. You can't hear the, hear the story and become righteous, self-righteous. So you should humble, humble all of us. How is it possible that someone could walk close to Jesus, see his goodness, see his beauty, and want what? Money? Fourth, liveliness in community. Love and generosity, unity and joy, assurance and boldness, 
a spirit of praise and power and a passion to reach out to win others are recurring marks of renewed communities. I think that's what's going on. I want to call you to not imagine you're part of the church. Not imagine you're thinking, yes, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, but you have taken the real steps to join, to join in. To the waters of baptism, this is the initiation into the covenant. Have you taken this step? Through these waters, they are, in a sense, waters of judgment. Passing through these waters, also being cleansed through them, ultimately, and the sign points to the work of Jesus. We are given a new identity. And this is what they take most seriously in this passage. They understand their identity comes through the the recapitulation of the story of Israel. They are forming, by God's grace, the new people of God. This is their identity. And the question comes out for us, where are you finding your identity? This is, as a believer, your primary and most fundamental identity. You are a child of God through the work of Jesus by faith. Let's pray. Lord, help us to enter into the joy of of how your scriptures work. Lord, I've tried to apply this passage, and uh, it's an important passage.